Okay. Good morning, Andy. Good morning, Ender. How are we? Good morning, Apricot. How are you traveling? Oddly pretty good. So that's good. Oh, spectacular. What about you, Ender? Uh, I'm excellent. I've been appointed to about seven different ministries, which I'm not supposed to tell anyone about, so it's going well. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I think I think we should probably just kind of get into it then, guys. Um, in, case you, in case you didn't notice, there was a bit of a major news story this week. Um, Ender, I might let you introduce it, actually. Oh, where, do, where do we begin with this one? Um, so... This sort of, I think, as near as I can tell, is is a bit of an unprecedented move in the Commonwealth history, much less Australia's, where the Prime Minister, with the help of the then Attorney General Christian Porter, figured out a way in which he could also be appointed as a Minister of the Crown in certain portfolios. And it's a weird sequence of events where it's not entirely clear why he's done everything he's done. It seems like there are potentially competing reasons. But it emerged by way of a couple of journalists writing a book about Morrison, disclosing the information to the public. And I feel like each day that it unfolds, there's just something new about the saga that, that makes it compelling from when Barnaby Joyce found out the governor general not documenting events in his diary, which he should have done. Um, Morrison trying to make light of it via some some fairly low effort memes on his Facebook page. It's definitely been the gift that keeps on giving, but it's... It's something we've never seen before in Australian political history, and I kind of hope we don't see again as well if 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 we're lucky. Yeah, I think your point about it kind of being unprecedented is really on the like hitting the nail on the head there. Um, I will say personally, you know, I was always a little disappointed that I missed the dismissal by like twenty years. So I'm glad I've got my own constitutional crisis. Um, ah. <laughs> but no, this is a really. Um, bizarre kind of thing and I think it really betrays Morrison's uh, character of how he views himself politics um, and the world in general Uh, would you guys say it's a stretch for me to say that this is this was really an attempt for him to shift Australia into a more presidential style of like leadership I was gonna say I think that's probably giving him more credit than, than he's due. I think the man's ambition never extended beyond the next election, but I sort of, my read of it is that what he was trying to do was exercise a degree of control over a Liberal Party that was spiralling towards what we saw in the as the electoral outcome of the, the 2022 election, um, where he's trying to keep various factions that cannot get along from tearing a party apart, and ultimately he failed to do that. But... Um, I think presidential is probably it gives him credit. I don't think he's earned or he's due. Mm, do you think it? Do you think he's sort of uh, he, he? He strikes me as somebody who, in, in a number of ways, is sort of in, in a little bit more in, in contact with what's going on culturally. I'm not saying he's adept at it. However, he seems to have a little bit more of a, a, a sense of that and. There's no doubt about it, in in my opinion, that the uh, American style of politics is uh, becoming more and more of a, a mindset and a paradigm in every culture that they've exported the American culture to. And Australia is still a huge consumer of American 
culture. I think it's possible that he has either been subconsciously influenced by that or was reading the room and thinking that that might be giving him an edge. I don't think it was a case of him uh, thinking, oh, this is going to secure my future. Uh, but he does seem to be somebody who keeps looking for that little edge, that little win uh, to try and make up a whole lot of small wins. And my personal opinion, Apricot, is I think it's quite possible that was part of his reasoning. I definitely right. take the point on on the American influence, and that's been going on since Clinton's victory in 92 when Democrats and Republicans alike would effectively export strategists to the UK in particular, and they the Democratic strategists were very instrumental in Tony Blair's 1995 election. Um, and then we've also done the same. We've learned from them with Linton Crosby and then exported him back. Um, but but the thumb on the, the pulse of what he needs to get by, what he needs to survive and sort of flourish in his own way i think is also a really fair point Ardeen. i think he's he's a man who has a degree of animal cunning he's like a more cunning david brent from the office it's the, the, the best <laughs> way i could describe him <laughs> which is also not the most flattering of uh of it was the nicest yeah it was the nicest i could manage on a sunday morning for him yeah but look i could i i i get that look Part part of the situation here and why it's so uh, complicated, aside from the fact that it it is is just, uh, I mean, there there is a two minutes of hate style frenzy for blood that's that's being greedily slurped by hungry media and bureaucratic vampires. I mean, this is the kind of story that that pays the bills or gives extra virtuous shine to your public image, and it's such a a juicy story, but there's also a difference between what's legal, what's moral, and what's good optics. Uh, the there's an article news in, in news.com.au by Samantha uh, Maiden on 16th of August titled "Tony Abbott Weighs In on Scott Morrison's Secret Minister Secret Minister Scandal," as Andrew Bolt calls for resignation. And there were two quotes in there, admittedly, one from Abbott who, uh, and one from, uh, from, from John Howard. Uh, John Howard's one was that uh, he said there was no evidence to date that the move was illegal. And I don't think anybody has credibly disputed that yet. There's certainly lots of... Uh, uh, lots of lots of TV solicitors and pundits are uh, pointing out exactly why it is illegal. It's yet to be proven, though. Uh, Abbott also decided, uh, also had his opinion that he uh, he didn't think it was uh, illegal. But there was a comment on here, which again is part of why it's so complicated, that I thought was a valid comment. Uh, I'll just read it out. The pandemic was a completely unprecedented situation and a whole lot of things that normally would never have been done were done. And without knowing a lot more than I have currently read in the papers, it seems to be, sorry, without knowing a lot more of what I've currently read in the papers, it would be reluctant to condemn, to condemn what seems to have happened, Mr. Abbott said. I think that is another valid angle you know there's there's been a lot of acceptance of what went on during the pandemic and it seems to be a little bit of a pick and choose based on ideal ideologies on what boundaries are pushed so it's a complicated story that i don't think can be neatly wrapped up 
No, and I, th- I think that's a very valid point. And and if you look at the timeline of events, how they've planned out, it's almost like there's two phases to this. There's the first phase. So on the day that the pandemic is is declared in Australia, um, Morrison is appointed to the role of the health minister. That's 14 March 2020. And Greg Hunt seems to be on board with that. Um, and the idea that it was a backup has a degree of sense to it only so far. Because if you're shutting down face-to-face contact and you're trying to limit people's exposure to one another, then the way of doing a backup ceremony is under question. But if you've got someone ready to go on the assumption the minister struck down, great. But you should tell the people and there's no reason not to. On 30 March, he's appointed finance minister. He doesn't tell Matthias Corman this. Corman was finance minister at the time. Corman was right faction. Hunt was centre right, which is Morrison's faction. So Hunt knows um, Corman doesn't. Whether that's a factional play, whether it's payback for the the Turnbull knifing, no, I'd have no idea. But JobKeeper comes out on the day that Morrison appoints himself to that ministry. So there's at least a veneer of legitimacy of logic that these portfolios mm. warranted some backup support. Whether it should have been just the PM or should have been distributed more evenly amongst the ministry that's to me that's a bit unclear like his logic for doing that it doesn't look good for him but the thing Mm. that undermines his claim that i was only doing this for the best interest of the country but it would have caused unnecessary angst is that the news poll for the the period 22 to 25 april in in 2020 has morrison a 68 percent satisfaction rating now, for him to get a satisfaction rating that high, but to claim he was worried the public would not understand and not give him the benefit of the doubt doesn't add up for me. The The initial handling of the pandemic was pretty well received by the electorate in general. Um, so holding back and not telling them about this just doesn't stack up in my mind. And it, it undermines the entire cause. But then you skip forward 12 months to April 2021, and he puts himself into resources to fix an issue where Keith Pitt had not rejected a... Um, renewal to the PEP 11 permit because PEP 11 was starting to get negative traction in liberal seats that they were worried about, the the, the teal mm. seats. That then feels like he's uncovered this mechanism and started using it to shore up electoral promises in 2021. So the 2021 phase becomes about setting them up for 2022. The 2020 phase becomes about the pandemic, but it doesn't explain the secrecy. Uh, do you think he sort of went a little bit golem and uh, grabbed hold of a, a, a ring with all good intentions of, of being a fair ruler and was quickly corrupted by what he understood the new powers granted him? I think he just, he he's an opportunist and he always has been. I think he saw a way to to make use of what they'd found constitutionally to try and... Um, ensure certain outcomes went a certain way because things like treasury he doesn't seem to have done much in treasury and that's it's not clear why he picked up treasury but home affairs Mm. um there was talk of that Sri Lankan family being resettled at the time and he's put himself into that portfolio and he's got his buddy alex hawk saying that you know medical attention onshore medical attention wouldn't necessarily be a pathway to resettlement and the questions about whether he intended to make a minister because the the portfolios he's picked up in 2021 in particular, have electoral significance. So treasuries, where the Liberals always hung their hat on being strong economic managers. Yep. Home affairs, they had the strong border protection regime to protect. And resources, he's he's un, he's taken a step to, with the Nats especially being very um, <clears throat> picky on the net zero emissions and refusing to commit, he's taken a stance there to almost 
head off electoral disaster by approving an environmentally um, hazardous project. Um, so I feel like it, it's less that and more just this. I've got this tool in my toolbox. I can use it for these reasons and I can do it to ensure that we're strong for 2022. So I, I think, again, as, ascribing a bigger picture to, to Morrison, I might be being unfair here, but giving him mm. the, the bigger picture, noble leader corrupted, is probably a degree, like it's it's flattering him in ways I don't think he's he's entitled to. Yeah. Oh, look. I'll, I'll I'll be perfectly clear. I'm no I'm no fan of of Morrison. I'm, I'm no fan of Albanese either. Um, I do th- I I do give him some um some leeway on the legality. I don't give him really um much leeway on the morality of the the situation. I, I would have a different opinion if he had. If it would, if it had been revealed that his his cabinet was aware of going on and that they had made the decision that it was in the best interests of the, the the country, I'd have a different opinion there. But the the level of secrecy on that, to me, in, in my opinion, fails the, the the morality test. And I give him absolutely zero credibility for the optics. I mean, it, it was it's something that uh, something that big you don't get to that level without realising and understanding that it will be revealed at some point. And it doesn't take a lot of uh, foresight to realise that as soon as it's revealed, it's going to be the shit storm that it currently is. Yeah, exactly. And on the legality front, near as I can tell, the Constitution doesn't prescribe the ratio of... MPs to ministry. So you could have a number of ministries being held by one MP, and it seems now you can have a number of MPs holding one ministry. I mean, accountability would rest with the decision maker at that time. It wouldn't necessarily create too much confusion there. So I don't think what he's done is illegal, and the Governor General I don't think has done anything illegal as well, because Mm. um, we have to go back to 84, and Bob Hawke has, has sort of given advice to the palace to say the Governor General's role is is really ceremonial administrative except for the reserve powers where he can sack PMs and governments in certain circumstances. We need it to be codified that way because of what damage a Kerr-Whitlam-style repeat fiasco could do to the role of the Governor-General of Australia. So the Governor-General's role is neutered. That doesn't excuse... And up until the diary point, the the Governor-General was largely, I think, to be excused of any blame. Failing to document the diary then starts to call into question whether the Governor-General was acting on behalf of the Crown or acting on behalf of themselves. And, And I think where you come down to it on both of them is the fact they haven't done anything illegal still doesn't mean what they have done is respect the integrity of the officers they're appointed to and haven't done taken steps that have damaged the reputation and standing of those officers. And the right thing to do, or the good thing to do, in my mind, is that they should both resign. I don't think they need to be sacked, but I think that they should offer to go rather mm. than drag this out any further. Oh, I, I, I wouldn't mind getting your opinion on that, April Copper. I just want to quickly jump in. We've got a good morning from Feathersoft, um, a... <laughs> I suppose a query from nuclear 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 spy ninety two. What is this, the Chaser podcast? Uh, we've got a a comment uh, from one of our regular listeners, Ben Along. He kept his promise of creating jobs. Admittedly, they were for himself. 
which I liked. <laughs> <laughs> and we uh, also have a comment from Kemp5895. The real question is, why did any portfolio need a backup at all? Wouldn't the decision-making default to the PM if the minister was taken out? Well, that's good. I'm sure it doesn't take too long to swear in a new minister in the event it's needed. So do you want to have a crack at answering that and then uh, flesh out your opinion on uh, Morrison for us, Apricot? Sure thing. Um, look, I, I, I agree with Kemp in that it probably doesn't take too long to sign in a new minister, uh, and it really is the secrecy around this all that's really kind of just, you know, not passing the pub test. Uh, I, I would go back to your point about how, you know, pandemic-era politics, new things were happening all the time that hadn't been done before. It was a new way of doing politics. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, if Morrison... is Like, say, if Greg Hunt and Morrison have come out, you know, in the first month of the pandemic, for example, and gone, hey, guys, uh, you know, I'm swearing... The, like, the Prime Minister is going to get sworn in as a health minister just in case I get down because, you know, this is a really dynamic situation. I feel like the public would have been like, yep, that's good leadership. Good idea. I like this idea. But doing it behind everybody's backs just really, really is on the nose. I do think they should probably both resign. Um, I don't think the Governor-General will, uh, mainly because they're not being um, as hammered as I think they probably should be for this. Um, sorry, excuse me. <coughs> oh, dear. Um, I've, this is really kind of a godsend to the Albanese government at this point, um, as oh, they are coming yeah. out of that. They are coming out of that honeymoon period, and now they can really focus on the previous government and be like, "Look how crap they were, um, look how you know dishonest everything." And you know, what are you going to do, Peter Dutton, to make sure that you know a future government new lead doesn't do the same thing? Um, and a byproduct of that, though, is they really don't want to focus on the Governor-General because they can't really, like, you know, that's not, the Governor-General isn't liberal. Uh, and mm. I think they'd really like to hammer the Liberals on this. Uh, that's um, an interesting observation, yeah. But, yeah, so, in short, they should both definitely resign. Um, it's just, it really doesn't pass the pub test. And, yeah, I, I think, honestly, Andrew, you did a fantastic job of laying out the timeline um, it should also be acknowledged that because this story originally broke in the Australian, I believe with Simon Benson and I forget their name. Um, but basically it was to promote their new book about the Morrison government. Um, and the question then becomes, what do they know and when? Because did like did the Australian public go to the 2020 election? not knowing that the Prime Minister had sworn himself into a bunch of extra portfolios, Ooh. committed basically this breach of trust that these journalists knew about but didn't want to say it then because it would have been, like, financially inconvenient for them because they hadn't finalised their book yet. Like, Oh, I love that. That's, that's a beauty. <laughs> I think oh. that, that's, that's almost certainly what's happened. And then on top of that, you've got that the Australian was also editorially backing the Morrison government, so it wasn't consistent with their byline to to make that declaration public um and it's interesting because when you were saying that and i was playing it through in my head apricot i thought would it have changed the result or would it have made the drubbing even even worse and it's sort of it, it's hard to say because i think the people who after 
watching Morrison for three years, particularly in 2021, as he did his level best to demonstrate how unfit he was for the job. If they still went to the polls wanting that returned, would this have shaken their faith or not? I, I don't know. But I think the Australian public definitely went to the the, the polls in this year um, without all the information that it needed to make an informed decision. We made, I think, the right call um, in the end with the information we had. But it's a very interesting what-if scenario. And Ooh. I think it really is... It, it maybe is the quiet point of the story, really, um, because... It's really kind of a cornerstone of democracy where, you know, the citizens look at the options, you know, they weigh up policies, they weigh up the government and they go and make an informed vote. They don't just vote. We really want people to be making an informed vote. Um, and so, yeah, I would really like some answers personally on this. Um, it's also yeah, worthwhile look, the- acknowledging oh, sorry, Barnaby. Sorry, it's also worthwhile acknowledging Barnaby's performance on Insiders this morning. Um, I'll admit I don't watch the show anymore, mainly because I value my sanity. Um, and you guys should be you guys should be listening to Talking Oswald instead. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it did seem to Barnaby apparently did seem to really kind of hint that he was sort of blackmailed by Morrison about it in terms of allowing uh, these himself to be sworn in to these portfolios because it may violate the coalition agreement and things like that. What are your thoughts? Uh, I mean, I'd, I'd need to know more because I don't have a lot of t- like trust for Barnaby either. He sort of... The, the implications for all of this... It, I mean, the, the, the Keith Pitt thing stacks up from an electoral politics perspective, but why the Nats would go along with it when they were already starting to cause trouble over the, the net zero problem, that doesn't make a lot of sense. So, But, but then... How is he blackmailed? Um, he's claiming he didn't really think through why Morrison made these decisions that were not within his his remit as prime minister, and he never really questioned it. It's it's a somber reminder this guy was once deputy PM. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, look, yeah. your, your your comment too about not having enough information, I think, is is running through this 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 whole thing at the the, the moment. There's there's no transparency. There's uh, no full details. I've it, it just seems like little bits are, are, are leaking out new angles, such as your uh, journalisting. Oh, I hadn't even thought of that, April. I can't tell you how much that tickled me. Uh, but this whole story is yet. I I don't know how far through it we we are. I don't know if this has even happened before. We did we did have a comment from uh from Feathersoft uh in the in the chat and just to acknowledge Feathersoft, we did see your your hand up, but uh, during the talk we don't actually take uh hand up requests from from people. You're more than welcome to contact us either directly or for, through mod mail if you do want to be a guest. We're always interested in having uh having guests. However, Feathersoft's question is there is precedent for a PM to be sworn in as a backstop in World War II uh, Minister for, De- for Defence. But as you've touched on, that was announced and seen as being prepared. Yes, COVID-19 was producing uncertainty and having preparations in place is a good thing. The lack of transparency is the issue. And I think probably all three of us are in agreement on the lack of transparency. Absolutely. And I think that that's where, for me, the most interesting part is going to come, which is the, the next steps on this, because I think there is a world in which these sorts of arrangements can be valid if you're, if you're well. Like, you know, the Minister for, I think it was Minister for War back then, um, that 
if they're if you've got a backstop in place because of conflict or whatever, um, then you, you put them in as a backstop and makes sense. But you tell the public about it. And so what Albanese does in terms of firming up any statutes that set the rules for how this is done in future, that's going to be really telling because um, mm. if if he sets it up so that the appointment of a, a backup minister is for consultation with the parliament, then it's effectively saying, look, if we're going to put a backstop in, does the parliament agree and does it have a view on it? Historically, ministerial appointments have been done at the discretion of the the government of the day. So the Liberals appoint their, their cabinet, the caucus, I believe, appoints the Labor cabinet, and then Governor-General swears them in, and then the, the government discloses who the ministers are. If right. you're going to have a backup minister, do you want parties involved in the discussion of that when you have questions about who has ultimate responsibility? When does it end? Like, what's, is there a, a sunsetting clause? To my mind, the Greens would want some form of discussion, Apricot, if you're going to put a second minister in place about what the checks and balances are. But I'm not sure that the Labor Party Liberals would want their appointments scrutinised like that. And I think that's going to be the interesting point of what does Albanese do to put guardrails on this in, in the future and stop the secrecy part from, from happening again. I, I agree 100%. And I believe uh, the Greens have already referred Scott Morrison to, I think it's the Parliamentary Ethics Committee um, mm. over this. We'll see you know, if anything kind of shakes out of there. Um, yeah, I, I think it's also probably fair to say that this story isn't done yet, guys. Um, we may be talking about it next week as well. <laughs> oh, I, I think that's that's quite reasonable, and that, uh, that 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 secrecy one's a good point. I mean, again, in the chat, Benelong has raised this uh, a quite valid question: Is it coincidence that Karen Andrews stated she was considering giving the Biloela family visas? Then Morrison swore himself in as Home Affairs Minister two days later, and they didn't get their visas. Now, that might just be all circumstantial. However, it might well be revealed that that's, uh, that's also part of what's going on. So you're, you're, you're certainly right, Apricot. There's a uh, – we may well be talking about this. Uh, I also noticed, too, there was uh, Morrison memeing uh, this this event and that was received a little bit differently by people depending on <laughs> on what their ideology dictated. Uh, I I know we're we're starting to run up against the the, the clock and need to move on, but I'd just be curious what uh, what the two of you think. I I personally fell into the fell into the the side of I thought it was funny and look I I think. We're in the middle of a little bit of a a, a purse lipped. Uh, we're seeing a bit of purse lipped lack of of humour that's that's infected the uh, progressive and far right uh, sides of society of society who let their ideology dictate what is what is funny. Uh, but for me, I thought it was a. I I thought the memes were were humorous. How about you two? For me personally, it was like the final gasp of breath of the daggy dad, like. <laughs> That's it. It's it's not surprising. It was pretty terrible, just because they kind of sucked anyway. He didn't even oh. meme himself very good, um, and I hope I never see a Morrison meme ever again. Yeah, I mean, it was it was very much you know, the right can't meme. But, I mean, I I just thought this is a guy who's historically acted like the idea of accountability was terrifying to him, and you know, once he got the job of prime minister, which he seemed to covet so desperately, he then looked mildly annoyed that people expected him to do things in the job and at a time when he probably needed a little bit more contrition to go look 
I accept in hindsight, I probably should have said something. You know, I I had my reasons, and but I was wrong. He's out there making shitty memes to try and justify it. And quite frankly, I think our meme was was much much better than, than anything Morrison put out. <laughs> oh, and man. you can see that you can see that meme on Ozpol memes if you're uh, if you're you're interested in the in the meme that uh, that Ender's talking about. We might even link it in the the comments um afterwards but from memes and things that can uh have double meanings uh fenny bay i believe was next that is correct congratulations everyone listening you are listening to one of the only uh podcasts that will acknowledge the fanny bay by election in the northern territory yesterday um (laughs) so personally i found it relatively interesting i've got the results up here um, this, the Fannie Bay by-election was caused by the resignation of former Chief Minister uh, Michael Gunner, um, who has resigned from politics, um, and it was seen as really the first major test for the new ALP leadership in the Northern Territory. Has it gone well? Um, look, it's really hard to say. Northern Territory electorates are super small, with a small amount of voters. I think there's only 5,000 people enrolled to vote in Fannie Bay kind of thing. Um, and so the local members, like personality and like connections with voters, uh, is really crucial in terms of getting out the vote. Um, but the ALP did cop a 15.6% swing against them yesterday, uh, bringing their primary down to 32.6%. Uh, it does look Mm. like they've still retained the seat though, um, with 52.2% on the two party preferred versus the country liberals. Uh, but for me personally, you know, biased as I am, um, the big story was the Greens <laughs> in there. Um, who... <laughs> Sorry, I just, you said you said that just as just as I was taking a sip of water, I thought I should have known that was coming. Are you are you a green apricot? I didn't know. I, that. I am. I, I am oh, wow. a green. That is um, <laughs> so. Uh, the Greens recorded a 9.2% swing in Fannie Bay, uh, taking their primary from the previous election of 102 to 19.4%, which means that the Northern Territory Greens actually kind of have a competitive seat now in the Northern Territory, which is really great. I know the NT Greens have really invested a lot of time and resources into the Northern Territory. For those who don't know, the Northern Territory is currently the only jurisdiction where the Greens don't have a parliamentary presence. Right. Um, and uh, Jonathan Parry, uh, interestingly, was A, the only candidate that was actually able to vote in Fannie Bay because the rest don't live in the area. Um, and also, he is the Greens National Secretary. So, you know, he's been doing a lot of party work. Yeah. Uh, that's look. That's interesting. I could can your your. Uh, this was one of the topics where I had mentioned to you when we were discussing it uh, before the talk that I needed to brush up on a bit because I didn't I didn't know much about this. A uh, couple of things that I thought were were interesting is I saw uh, I, I can't remember where I read it, it said that for nearly three decades the electorate has been a stepping stone to to power. It also sounded to me as though it was uh, one of the, or read to me as though it was one of the more uh, affluent suburbs in in Darwin. That made that sort of stand out a little bit to me. Can you just, for, for people like me who don't understand 
perhaps a little bit more of the significance of Fetty Bay. Can you just, just give us a little bit more background on that apricot, if you know it? Sure, I can give you a little bit. Um, I don't know if it's really apt to say it's one of the more affluent suburbs of Darwin, mainly just because Darwin is such a small city, essentially. Um, but it is, however, basically entirely, it is one of the few electorates that are, that is entirely located within the city. Um, so, and that's kind of important because that usually corresponds to like a higher voter turnout. Um, and it's also kind of, it's just easier to campaign in like, realistically, a party can door knock every single house in Fanny Bay on a weekend, um, and have like a one-on-one conversation with the voters. So that's it. Um, I forget how it got its name. I believe it's technically named after a singer. Um, But, yeah, and in terms of being a stepping stone to power, I believe it is, but that's more of a byproduct of, again, being completely city-based seat. Right. So. I, I, okay. Yeah, look, that's that's why I asked you. I, I, you you normally have, uh, you know, a, a more in-depth understanding of this uh, sort of thing. Thank, thank goodness for uh, for people like me, and I like, like that you can just sort of put it into a, a digestible form um for us i also thought it was interesting too how it seems to be those those results particularly as you just detailed them how they tend to reflect um uh i can't remember the 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 word for the you know the the sort of uh current mindset or you know the the hive the hive mind uh i know it's a german word but i can't remember Guys, thank you. That's the word. Yeah, it does. Those results do seem to reflect the uh, the zeitgeist of the Australian voting population at the the moment. A, uh, a win for Labor, but arguably a loss with how much they they lost. Uh, you know, a little bit of a poke in the eye for the the Liberals, and both of them taking their eyes off the Greens, running up behind them. Perhaps I, I will say. The, the country Liberals did actually have a fairly okay showing. They had a 7% swing, bringing their total to 41%. Um, <clears throat> at the next election, they could win it, um, but I'd almost be on the verge of calling it a three-way contest um, because in- environmental issues are actually really prevalent in the Northern Territory, especially with fracking, um, which mm. the Greens really have, for lack of a better word, a monopoly on in terms of like public trust. Um, and we've also, after the last election um, in the Northern Territory, we've seen the collapse of Territory Alliance, which was like the third force for a brief period of time in the Northern Territory. So the Greens are also probably going to like suck up a lot of that, you know, disaffected major party vote. Um, it's interesting, I think, because there were three independents also running in this by-election, but none of them really performed well. Um, in my opinion, uh, the highest was uh, Leah Potter, who got 2.9%. Um, whether or not that's just like a difference in terms of demographics, you know, like all the quality of the independence is to be determined. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think this will be a really interesting seat to watch in the future if you are super interested in Northern Territory politics. Which we all are, of course. Obviously, yes. You know, this, is, this is talking Oswald. Yep. It is, and it's like that point before about the swing against Labor, but but notionally a victory. By-elections, at least at the federal level, have always been difficult for incumbents to, to sort of win. I know this is not on 
the same sort of wavelength as that, but it's it's that picture that Labor's in now, which is we won, but we also got a massive swing against us, so what's the messaging behind that? And I think broadly Arbo's behaving like he understands that that, that message is out there, that there's no guarantee that they won't get a, a Liberal-like drubbing at the next federal election. Um, it's obviously too early you've done much about it, but it'd be interesting just to watch in, in any future state and federal by-elections whether that theme of you know, being the lesser of two evils is something that the Labor Party picks up on and responds to institutionally at a policy level or whether they set themselves up for, for troubles in 2025. I I would also agree. I'd also make the point just quickly in the on the super uh, thrilling topic of territory representation at a federal level. Um, based off this result, should the ACT and the Northern Territory get extra senators? Because I know there has been that discussion lately, uh, be it three or four. Uh, I would be fairly confident of the Greens managing to get a senator in the Northern Territory. Hmm. Hey, can we just do a little a little quick segue on on that and get your opinion on it? I I can't even remember why it came up uh, a little while ago, and I saw the uh, the argument against it was uh, was was population based. You know, the argument for it was sort of more of a a, a size and importance uh, base. What's what's your well, actually, probably probably both of you, given that you're 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 more sort of a fay with all the details. Um, and maybe you first, Ender. What's what's your opinion on the ACT and or Northern Territory uh, getting their representation increased? I mean, I'm I'm not opposed to it at all. I think that um, I'm probably more familiar with the ACT, having lived there for a bit and, and worked there. But um, from the journey it's been on historically, especially in the last twenty years, in terms of growing as as a city and really coming into its own as a as a kind of not just a town built around government, but people moving there for quality of life reasons and the like. Um, it doesn't make sense that that this representation should be decided by factors that are several decades out of date. So I'm not opposed to the idea at all. I think it's it's a good call. Hmm. Yeah, you, Apricot. It's a really interesting subject, in my opinion, um, and I don't really have a concrete position on it. Because the main argument is that the ACT actually now rivals Tasmania in terms of population. I think Tasmania has maybe like between sixty to 100,000 people more, which, you know, that's a pretty large number, but on the scale of population, not really. Um, whereas while the ACT has, you know, two senators, Tasmania has 12. Um, and so there is that, like, disparity. The problem is, though, is if we're looking at it relative to population size with the other states, um, the ACT would be overrepresented if it got more senators. And the argument that Tasmania is more overrepresented in the Senate isn't an argument that we should also be overrepresented mm. in the Senate. Um, so on that, that's one side of it. But then you have the other where there is only two senators and they're elected every, like, term. It is really... I, I can understand, you know, a Territorian's um, irksome, like, like how they'd be annoyed mm. at it. Um, will it change? Maybe. I do think the Territories deserve 
a bit more independence, the ability to, you know, make their own laws and things like that. Because we have seen the federal government intervene before. Um, yeah, it's not it's not going to be a quick issue that's resolved, unfortunately. And I'm not entirely sure what the correct answer is. Oh, okay. Look, I was I was just just interested in your uh, opinion. I suppose um, I suppose you could argue getting the extra representation could act politically as a bit of a a safeguard mechanism, which sounds like a good topic. <laughs> oh, oh yes. Um, thank you. On that note, uh, Adi, we may move to our final topic of today, which is the. Government and the Greens appear to be gearing up for a new uh, legislative fight with the safeguard mechanism. Um, The Greens have signalled that they will be pushing harder than they did uh, on Labor's climate target, uh, which will be really interesting to see. The main part about this that I kind of wanted to talk about, though, is actually less about the safeguard mechanism and really Albanese's response to this, because he had a key point where he said that, oh, I'm not really going to pay attention to the Greens. They'll, you know, always be looking for product differentiation between us, um, which I thought was a really interesting term to use. And I, I, I don't like it. I don't like the idea of boiling uh, policies and politics down to a product that you're selling uh, the masses And it also draws this false equivalency between their policies, like, oh, you know, we both have, you know, good climate policy, so the Greens are just going to look for a way to brand theirs to be more shiny. Mm. Um, Doesn't really hold up to me. I I, I was wondering, uh, I thought I'd just get your opinions about that. I saw it as a bit of a rebuke to... um, Baird getting a bit punchy on calling the Labour Party a, a centre-right party, and that was a just a very subtle way of sort of re-establishing Labour's bona fides as a, as a progressive party and saying, well, we're both progressives, and so the Greens are just doing this to make themselves sound like they're better, a better choice than us. And it was that subtle... It, I, I think since... It'd be my main criticism of Albanese in the, you know, 70 or 75 odd days he's been in office is just the way in which there's been a bit of that kind of factional flexing on the greens and trying to put them in their place it feels a bit like that um and i think it's also an attempt to try and keep the middle ground whilst also keeping the it's trying to have his cake and eat it too um a little bit but but i definitely feel that especially challenging paul keating you know this this party this venerated elder statesman labor party to a debate on their credentials and calling them center right i think that invited a response like this you need to actually mm. pick up on something there. It wasn't Bant's challenge. wasn't a like call about uh, whether or not Labor is a centre-right party necessarily to Keating. It was more that Keating himself had hit back over Bant uh, referring to the Labor Party as a neoliberal party um, and that basically the Hawke-Keating governments had brought neoliberalism to Australia, which Hawke kind of, sorry, not Hawk, sorry, Keating, sort of seemed to reject, despite previously, in, in like, it's recently, as I think, you know, four years ago, he was crowing about the merits of neoliberalism that he'd done when he was the treasurer and prime minister. Um, so, I, yeah, I just want to, like, pick up on that point, that it wasn't necessarily Labour as a centre-right party, which I would personally say they are. Um, 
it was more about the damage, the long-term damage that neoliberalism has done in the country. Uh, no, no doubt about about that side of it. I think it was just more you're going to see more of this kind of tit for tat. It's almost like a petty blow the belt blow about trying to undermine the credibility of of the Greens and vice versa mm. on as a progressive force. And I, I just think that there will be this will now invite a similar response from Band at some point in the future, and then Labor will come back with a similar response because there is that sense, and I think you see it often in our sub where. There's almost this view that the Greens are hurting progressivism in Australia by taking votes away from Labor and this this entitlement. And I think we saw the Liberals suffer that entitlement mentality with the tail seats going against them, this entitlement mentality that the progressive vote is the Labor vote. You know, we, we're entitled mm. to that vote as a progressive party and the Greens copying it because of that kind of, you know, there's no solidarity here. Um, so I don't, I don't necessarily think it's the right call from Albanese, but I think that might be why. I think it's it's the it's the game of politics. It's the dirtiness of politics rather than some sort of accurate statement about policies and intent and, and position. Yeah, and that's probably why I would disagree with you, uh, Apricot. I actually do think it's uh, <clears throat> trying to package the the most the most glittery product. Uh, it's it's unpalatable when you have, uh, say, your level of, of depth of understanding of what's on offer to see it reduced to shiny little sound bites. But the name of the, the game is, uh, you know, getting the, getting the punters through the, the, the sizzling sausage parade next uh, election and making sure you get their tick in your, your box. And I think you have to simplify it, and I think part of simplifying it is creating something like we've got the the better product and ignoring the fact that it's it's completely it's completely different i think that's exactly what they're doing and personally i think it's quite a prudent political move as unpalatable as that might be i'd probably agree with that like i <laughs> I can acknowledge the, you know, um, real politic uh, move of it, of him, you know, trying to really establish that, you know, oh, we're essentially the same, but the Greens are just trying to be different. Um, yeah. <clears throat> again, it, yeah, it is quite unpalatable to me. I do think the ALP is very worried about the next election. Um, you know, it's only been 100 days, not even. Um, but... As the results are going, it's really going to... I think we are seeing a kind of degradation of the two-party system, Mm. especially in Queensland. Um, Well, we can only hope. True, that's true. But, yeah, I I do not like Albanese. I think he is... I I think at times he does see the Greens as more of his, like, threat rather than the Liberal Party. Um, particularly under Dutton, which isn't going to be very fruitful, I think, for the country. Um, yeah. No, I think also, of... I think ultimately it, it, it won't be. And I think Ender's uh, point about that sense of entitlement that, you know, ty- typically I and a lot of other people tend to associate that sense of entitlement uh, with the the Liberal Party, I think it's also being revealed now in Labor's interactions with the 
the Greens, that there's that very same sense of entitlement. And my personal opinion is that's a characteristic of the the two majors. And I to, to me, I wonder why are people so convinced that Labor are somehow immune to the lobbying and pressures of large corporations and uh, external influences in the same way that the, the Liberal Party isn't. It's, uh, you know, it's it's just sort of a belief that I don't understand why uh, the new guy in town is suddenly somehow less subject to that than the the previous uh, the, the previous party that was in. Well, I mean, that's because... Oh, sorry, Ender, I'll let you go. So I was going to say, part of it, I think, is because of, of the the position that Labor holds, has historically held rather than currently holds on on the the more sort of progressive side of politics and the way that's associated with more of a, a reverence for fact and science-based approaches. And it seemed to be a little bit cleaner, I think, than necessarily it is once you get below that surface veneer. But I think just to, to be the, the one person giving Albanese a bit of credit here, I think he's a canny political operator and that what he's done so far in, in a very limited window of time is come in and be boring and competent because that's what the country needed and, and not just what he needed to be successful in the polls, but Morrison presided over a period that if you, even if you want to be favourable to him was a tumultuous period and mm. the country I think needed a bit of a reset and an excuse to get some faith back in its institutions and that has been delivered. Whether it continues, I don't know, but but I think for all of the faults, that point probably does need to be called out that the stability is actually something that, on a bipartisan note, people should be able to acknowledge and, and respect that that he has brought that into into political discourse at the moment. Yeah, look, True. I think that's a fair fair point, but I think just because you superficially wipe the toilet seat uh, clean doesn't mean the same old redbacks aren't still living under it. <laughs> oh, dear. Um I would like to give you guys a few numbers, sort of, sort of, to really kind of put um, the ALP green relationship into context. Um, these are coming uh, from the forthcoming uh, election study from the 2022. I won't be able to give you exact numbers, and these are wonky because, um, right. again, I don't want to say where I got these. Um, yep. <laughs> sorry, guys, for all the secrecy. I'm doing a Morrison. Um, <laughs> but um, are you a minister too? <laughs> no, no, I'm not a minister. I'm not that good. Only assistant minister. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, there's a few crucial numbers. Uh, if we recall from the 2019 election, uh, the Greens were the second largest group in terms of young voters that we you know had support from young voters. Labor just edged them out, I believe. Um, that has apparently grown. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised now if, in terms of young voters, the Greens are the largest party in terms of support. From just 18... to interrupt, you're, you're talk these are federal figures. Yeah, these are federal. Um, there's also uh, there's been it's, it's been well known that there has been a decline in partisanship in Australia. And when I say partisanship, I mean like people identifying as a member of a political party or as like a Labor voter or a Green voter. That's been a downward trend for ages now. Um, would you guys agree with that? Definitely. 
and I think there's another point. The Guardians made this often, that those who do join parties tend to be more ideologically motivated or ideologically obvious than the broader electorate. So Liberals are more right-wing than the average voter. Labor and Greens members are more left-wing than the average voter. And that obviously has implications for pre-selections and for policy decisions as well. True. But one of the things that apparently is in the forthcoming uh, federal election study is political partisanship as a whole is down across the parties, except for the Greens. Uh, That's actually arisen. There are now more Green partisans than ever, Um, which I think is rather telling. And I won't, I I know, sorry, I do actually know this number, but I'm not going to say it just in case I get told off. Um, but previous, at previous elections, uh, we quantify how many voters considered voting for each party, but ultimately didn't. Um, and so, you know, from 2013 onwards, roughly about 10% of the electorate has considered, uh, voting green before. Okay. Um, which kind of tracks with our vote. However, at 2022, I do know that that number is much higher, at least double. Uh, so that's interesting. Yeah, uh, I think it's going to be a really interesting uh, few electoral cycles. Well, especially like if we go back to Ardit's point before. I mean, the reason that Labor is susceptible to to lobbying at the moment is because they have power, and that's why the Liberals are susceptible to lobbying. They've got power, mm. money talks, people want things. What happens? to the Greens when they start to accumulate more power, therefore they have something people want. Are they going to remain aloof to that or is it going to bring them towards a more centre-left position, drag them a little bit further away from the kind of what Bant described as more social democratic position to a more liberal democratic position as a result? Because that might also bring in an influx of more pragmatically minded members or it may not. I don't don't know the answer, but it will be an interesting one to watch for. because the Greens are a bit of crossroads, I guess. True. And just to touch on your point about how Bent described the party as a social democratic party, um, that was actually a really key moment for me, because uh, you guys have probably seen a similar comment that I've made in the sub before, where I've often, often described the Greens as going through a really painful transition from an environmental protest party to an environmentally conscious social democratic party. And I feel like after 2022, the like the foundations for that are there. Like, you know, I would say that we are more social democratic rather than protest party at this point, and we can kind of scale that up. Whether or not it shifts into like a liberal democratic party, I'm not so sure. I take your point about power and the corruption influence of it, but unlike the liberal and labor parties, the Greens core brand is actually really tied to integrity and things like that they have led the way in a lot of these things and to kind of fail on that key plank i think would be to fail as a party for the greens rather than just being a bit shit for the other for the majors yeah look i'd I'd agree with that I, i think i've made the comment before that whilst you know it'll be a cold day in hell that i'll vote for the the greens uh I have understood why I why I might consider that 
Um, and I've also been, I've, I've also supported a subset of their positions and the subset of positions that I support, which I see as the, the saving core of them is that, that sense of, uh, in integrity and that sense of, uh, uh, you know, moral anger at how the average the average person is is treated and and surveilled. So for for me, uh, if that disappeared, Greens would be a total a total write off. Uh, I, I think it's very important core, and I don't think I'm alone in that. All right. No, I think I think that that's a fair point, and I, I've said this day record as well. I I like a lot of the green stuff, and if they if I got the sense that they were probably more interested in harnessing market forces to achieve climate-friendly outcomes, I'd probably be a Greens voter. Um, I think that's the the one area where I'm not quite aligned with them, but of the, all the parties in Australia, you know, the Teal movement captures my my imagination as liberal, the, the Greens as a social democrat, and I am I like parts, really strong parts of both of their platforms there more than I do Labor or Liberal. Hmm. Well, in terms of writing things off, I think it's probably just about time that we write off this episode. Um, I'm not <laughs> sure if we have any new comments, Adit, if you'd like to read out. No, I, I, I've, I've just checked. Just let me just do a, a final uh, a, a final check. So, no, nothing, uh, no no new things to, to add. But, look, I do I do appreciate the extra in, extra interaction that we we had today in the the, the chat. I'm pleased pleased that the uh, that people are enjoying listening in and uh, conducting a little bit of conversation in the the background as they're they're listening listening to us. Uh, it's it's very positive, and we do appreciate you being here joining us each Sunday. Indeed. And if any of you guys would like to be a guest up here with Adit and myself in the future, just reach out through Modmail or comment on this post, and we'll see it. Alrighty. Uh, based on that, I'm going to head off, guys. So you all have a great day. Yeah, Thanks, thank Sacred you both. Cop. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thanks, Ender. See you, guys. See you.